Hello and welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here for episode 359 and my conversation with the Dean of the School of Performing Arts at the University of Central Florida, percussionist, educator, composer, arranger, and author, Jeff Moore. We'll check back in with him shortly. But first up, Marching Mizzou. We've had a successful conclusion to our band camp with our Concert on the Quad experience Sunday, and the students have been great to work with the whole time. Unfortunately, right now, we, like a lot of the country, are dealing with excessively hot temperatures. So we're pausing outside activities for the moment, but we are fortunate to have great weather for the near entirety of the camp And we look forward to what hopefully is another great year for the entire group. It's also back to classes for the fall semester this week. Things so far have gone well on my side with a usual fall semester at this point of career development, oral skills, and co-teaching jazz pop and rock with my great jazz colleague, Dr. Sam Griffith, along with the athletic band's experiences. Just happy to be back in front of the general population and music student body working on all of that. All right, let's get to today's guest, Jeff Moore. Prior to the beginning of the interview, I mentioned to Jeff that I believed he and I had met when I was a grad student at UNCG, and part of my job there was coordinating the National Conference on Percussion Pedagogy when I was held there. There was at least one year, if not more later on, that Jeff attended and presented on items related to marching and arranging and composing for percussion. In any case, we got reacquainted with each other at the beginning of our Zoom call and settled in for a fascinating interview. Jeff's career in higher education has taken place entirely post-masters at the University of Central Florida where he was brought on as the first ever full-time percussion instructor there in the mid-90s. He has since built a strong program, while also passing along a lot of the teaching duties to his other colleagues, Kirk Gay and Thad Anderson, while he has moved up the ranks in administration at UCF. His experiences are wide-ranging. Aside from the teaching and the admin, he has many years being involved with drum corps, an active composing and arranging career, has performed quite often, has done a lot of work with PAS, and as an author. We get to all of this, his mock trial and mock congress years in high school, his years at North Texas and Wisconsin-Madison, and quite a lot else in this interview. So let's get to it. We recorded this interview over Zoom on August 2nd, 2023, and it begins right now. Jeff, give me a summation of both your per- percussion responsibilities, if you have any at this point, and what your, also your job responsibilities are now. Sure. I am uh, the Dean of the College of Arts and Humanities at the University of Central Florida. This is my eighth year as Dean, but my 30th year at the University of Central Florida. And I started as the percussion professor. So even through the years when I was chair and then eventually became the director of the School of Performing Arts, I always tried to keep a day where I could teach lessons. And sometimes I would conduct a piece or so in the percussion ensemble. There were some years where we did basic 
the new literature session at PASIC or have had uh, elements where we performed at PASIC uh, either as faculty or with students. And uh, I've, I've sort of rotated into the percussion ensemble class for those pieces, but I didn't run the class. It's a Thursday-Friday combination. I teach percussion history and pedagogy courses, and those alternate years where we offer them. But any any given semester, you can find me in the percussion studio probably Thursday mornings and most of the day on Friday morning through uh, uh, late afternoon. But otherwise, I'm I'm the dean of the college, and that's uh, seven different units. That's two schools, a school of performing arts, school of visual arts and design, and then the departments of philosophy, religious studies, English, writing and rhetoric, history, uh, modern languages and literature. Sorry. I'll get into the kind of the logistics part uh, in a bit. But tell me first about coming to the University of Central Florida, where you were prior to there, what you ha- what what was the status of the program when you enter, those kinds of things. My background, I mean, it's very fortunate. I've had a very lucky uh, process when I got to this. The University of Central Florida was the first college job uh, right out of graduate school. So I grew up in San Jose, California. I uh, studied drum set with a guy named Forrest Elledge. And I studied classical percussion with Galen Lemon. And then later towards my senior year, started studying with Tony Cerrone out in San Jose. And then I studied marching percussion with Bob Kalkoffin. And Bob had been a snare tech for the Vanguard uh, through the 70s and had taught at Blue Devils and also uh, was, I think, the percussion director at the San Jose Raiders for a while. So I I had this very uh, interesting training as a high school student. And when I graduated uh, in 86, I went to North Texas where I studied with Bob Chitroma, Ron Fink, and Ed Sof. When I graduated with my undergrad, it was a bachelor of music education, but through a, a conflict with the College of Education at North Texas, you would get a bachelor of music degree, even though it was an education degree. I graduated from North Texas in 91 and started my master's right away at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. I graduated with a percussion performance degree. I studied with Jim Latimer when I was there. In 93, I graduated. And then they hired me back for one year as the uh, percussion coordinator for the bands area at the University of Wisconsin. And the job opened at the University of Central Florida for the fall of 94. So I applied for it, interviewed, and it was the first interview I'd ever went on, and I was hired. And so I started in the fall of 94. I was all at 26 years old, right out of a master's degree with one year experience at the University of Wisconsin. And uh, and I started the job. I was the first full-time percussion professor they had. When I first got to the University of Central Florida, they had had adjuncts teaching percussion. So a, a man named Bob Petta, who was the principal percussionist with the Orlando Philharmonic and the Florida uh, Orchestra before that uh, in Orlando uh, was an adjunct teacher. There was a while there, there was a woman named Beth uh, Raddick, who is now Beth Gottlieb, uh, Danny Gottlieb's wife. Mm-hmm. And so she was working at Disney and also teaching part-time at the university. And they did a national search. And you know, the finalists were Michael Gould, Randy Isles, Beth Raddick, and myself. Those are the four. And, uh, and I, I got the job uh, and started in the fall of 94 and have been here ever since. I'm going I'm to jump ahead a little bit in terms of the school itself. So UCF, is the is that the largest undergrad population institution in the country or like right there? 
it's tough to say. We sort of measure them at the size of the university, and it, the, the the enrollments fluctuate so much. It's hard to say you are definitively this or that any yeah. given year. But we have over seventy thousand students. That's with online students, undergraduate and graduate, uh, which makes us the largest, significantly the largest school in the state of Florida. And any given year, we're second or maybe third, but usually second in the country. Arizona State is the largest with a. They got about one hundred and fifteen thousand students, but they're online student body is so big, so robust that it's sort of hard to tell what does that look like on campus? You know, what are we talking about? But they have several campuses as we do. You know, we have a a Rosen College of Hospitality Management over by the convention center. Our medical college and nursing college will be in Lake Nona, which is another campus. Then we have a downtown campus in Orlando and then the main campus on the east side of Orlando. So like Arizona State, we have several campuses and so it's not really like if you came to the main campus in Orlando, you would see 70,000 students there any given day. Sure. Uh, in your 30 years there, I would assume that it's like you've seen um, just a massive growth. That's true. When I got to UCF, it was 24,000 students, largely a commuter campus. People were wearing University of Florida and Florida State shirts more than they wore University of Central Florida shirts. Uh -huh. And then I've watched not just our campus grow, but, you know, the profile of the university has grown so strong. And once once our football team and other sports teams started doing very well, we sort of has had a renaissance of, of school spirit. But it's really always been that way in the music department. You know, the music department through all of these growth spurts, when I first got to UCF, 24,000 students or so in the student body. We had a music department of about 150 majors. I had a percussion studio of 20. Mm -hmm. And then as we've grown into these tremendous sizes, I mean, 70,000 students, we're about 350 in the music department and still the percussion program is about 24 students. So we've always maintained that sort of uh, typical music department experience. I mean, my my experience at North Texas was tremendous. I mean, there was over 200 percussion majors when I was there. Uh, I was one of 75 freshmen in 1986. Mm -hmm. That's a large cohort of yeah, just percussion. Uh, yeah. So it, it was a, it's an interesting story when you look at your undergrad experience and it was so unique, but that was the one you knew. And then you go out to the world and you go to all these programs like the one we have at Central Florida. And it's I think it's much more uh, right sized in 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 that way. So even though the university is tremendously big, the music department has the same feel as some of the other universities that you would find that have much smaller um, enrollments. Re regarding kind of the school of music portion, what did what was the situation you walk into facilities wise, both within the school of music and your own department there? Well, I walked into a situation where the teaching studio or my office was a converted janitor's closet. Okay. And I was able to fit my Dave Weckl drum set and one four and a third octave marimba into this teaching studio with two drum pads. So I could at least do some lessons in that space. Then I had a room next to that office. That was the percussion teaching studio. If you want to call it or that, you know, where I outside of my office where I could teach timpani and had two drum sets and those kind of for that instruction. Then the room next to me was on the other side was called the organ room because there was a giant organ in there, but we hadn't had an organ major in about 20 years before I got there. So it was constantly locked and we had all the percussion equipment sort of stored around it. And there just wasn't 
hardly any percussion equipment at all. There was no hardware uh, practically. There were very old toms, uh, old set of Rogers timpani and a set of four Yamaha timpani. I mean, that was that was it. So one of the conditions of my hire when I when I got in is, you know, I was I, I started I, I when I was at North Texas, I marched Vanguard in 1988. And then I started teaching the scouts, uh, Madison scouts in 1991. So this job that I'm hired for is in the, you know, fall of 94. I had, I had been a, a clinician and a, a, an artist with Yamaha and they had a program where they, if you use their methods instruments or their instruments in your methods class, you could then get the professional line stuff at a discount of sorts, as long as you had a cooperating music store. So when I was hired, I said to the chair of the music department, in order to run the pro- program, I need multiple marimbas. I need an, a real set of five timpani. I need concert bass. I need all of this. I need the hardware. And so we worked out a deal with Yamaha where we used their equipment in our methods classes for brass and woodwinds. I was able to get really the inventory that I needed down there to get the program started. I mean, it wasn't the be all end all. It was the start. And I was able to sort of have the department be able to pay that off uh, over years. But, you know, you can't at a state university get in any kind of contract for multi-year purchasing. So it was on that sampler program that Yamaha was running at the time. Really worked out well for me because the students, you know, when you're brand new to a program, they're like, well, what what are you going to do? And then when you come in with all this gear and then you can actually do this literature at the high level and it sounds good and they had access, but we only had those two spaces outside of my janitor's closet office it was it was difficult. You'd have to practice with other people practicing right next to you. It was a crazy situation that over the years we had to work to remedy. We eventually got more rooms. We were able to spread out more. I was able to get more equipment. The years that uh, DCI was in Orlando were godsends because the companies would bring all of this gear down, and when the finals were over, you know, Remo and other people were like. We have all this extra stuff. Jeff, do you want this stuff for the school? Yes, I'll take it. So <laughs> we were able to inherit uh, some uh, good amount of gear uh, from DCI and some other uh, uh, ways. And now we have a building, you know, since I, when I became chair, we moved into a, a new building that was built for us. And so now the facilities, you know, there's eight dedicated per, uh, practice rooms for percussion and a full storage area and the equipment is really when I have guests in they they marvel at the quantity and quality of the of the gear that we have. Uh, it's really in great shape. The students do a great job of maintaining and caring for it. I think they appreciate when they come into that space uh, how lucky they are. And then many of my students they'll go to graduate school and they'll call me back and go, "What's I, they they don't even organize their hardware?" <laughs> and I'm like, "It's okay. It's not." You know, you can help them. Yes. <laughs> uh, and uh, please don't blow up. You know, this is not, you know, I, I was not in a uh, normal situation. It was really a, you know, it was definitely a, a starting it with nothing, really, and building it. But the advantage of that is, you know, provided you have good institutional support, which I did from my administrators, I was able to get things in a in an order and the company, my endorsements, they have been so supportive of my career over the years. The companies that I've been with and still are, am with, uh, Yamaha and Paiste and Remo and 
Salyer's Sticks and Mallets LP. They were so supportive of what I was doing, Remo, uh, that I I was able to get what we consider sort of the smaller ticket items as part of my endorsement or working with clinics or whatever I was doing. And that allowed me to funnel the resources of the institution to those larger ticket items, the multiple five octave marimbas, the ringer timpani, you know, these things that are high end. I could use my budget over years completely for one large purchase because the smaller things that sort of take away from that investment was being supported by the uh, companies and the uh, great uh, work that they did. And I, I put on lots of days of percussion here at the at the university and other things that they were supportive of and had lots of clinicians in and there's equipment that comes with them and sometimes they didn't want it back and it was fantastic for us. <laughs> That's great. When you start, are you the only percussion professor? Did you have adjuncts? Were you always working with the marching band? What 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 ended up being kind of your job responsibilities? Yeah, it's it's a great question. And you know, when I started at the age of 26, I was I couldn't believe that people would pay you to teach percussion a livable wage. I was like, right. this is a livable wage. That's the end. <laughs> this is unbelievable. And I, it turns out the livable wage they were giving me was the lowest they were paying anybody in the program. <laughs> but uh, I, I didn't care. I was like, wow, I, I wake up, I, I, I get to teach percussion. This is the greatest gift I have. Yeah. So I was gung ho for the whole thing. And I so appreciative. I mean, when you're 26 without a doctorate and you get a job, I mean, shut up, you know, be appreciative and, and, and do whatever is necessary. Hold on to this job the tenure didn't require the doctorate, which most places do. And so I, again, if the institution is going to gamble and invest in me, I was going to double down and invest right back into it. And so when I got here and they said, we need you to teach these majors. And, you know, there was already a a percussion ensemble class that had been going on and a mallet ensemble class. So two ensembles. I started and I got a grant to uh, buy steel drums so we could do a steel drum band. And then I wanted to do a world music ensemble uh, that per- percussion specific in there. And the mallet ensemble kind of grew its own repertoire. I mean, it was, you have, you have the smaller mallet ensemble and sort of the large keyboard percussion orchestra kind of thing. So I had to get the equipment. I had to do this. As I said, the administrative administration was supportive. So I just taught and I, would get to school at 8, 8.30 in the morning, and I wouldn't leave on Tuesdays and Thursdays. I didn't leave until 9.30. And when I was hired, they said, would you help out with the marching band and do the drum line? And I said, oh, sure. I mean, I'm thanks for the job. I'm, I'll do it. So I wrote for the first three years the marching band music. I wrote the pregame music that we still play. You know, it's a variation now because over the years, but I was part of the band, marching band staff. I was I, every game day. That's just what I did. So I was the percussion professor with 18 students at the time. I grew to 20, but 18, three ensembles. I taught the percussion techniques class and did the marching band. So I was out there Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays and Saturday, and I had to write the music on the weekends while I was teaching the Madison Scouts. And in 1993, I became the you know, percussion director and the percussion arranger for the Scouts. So I was doing that and flying it into Madison once a month at least, sometimes twice a month. And then doing clinics and concerts. And so I was so grateful. As I said, I, I didn't realize, you know, when I look back at doing all of this by myself, it was, I would never do that to anybody else. But I I just accepted it gladly and, and thought this was the life. And then after my third year, I, it was it was difficult to maintain all of this. 
And I said, could I get some help? And they said, we're not going to hire a second percussion person until we hire our first oboe teacher. We didn't have a, we didn't have a bassoon teacher. Everything was adjuncted out. We were relatively small full-time faculty. Mm -hmm. So they said, you're not going to get any help. And I said, well, you know, the other things you're talking about, we'd have to grow the program in order to qualify for that support. I'm telling you, the percussion program is already that big. This is what you need. I need more help. So I went through the tenure process back then was four years. So I didn't push too hard and I was tenured. And then after I was tenured, the first year as associate professor, I said, you know, I really do need some help. So the marching band guys, the band director, Rick Greenwood at the time, and Ron Ellis, who I think is at University of Texas, San Antonio now, uh, they were just great. They really appreciated that I was helping out with the drum line and doing that extra work, but they wanted to help me. And they had a band budget, so they were able to hire people. So I said, if I could pick the guy that I wanted to work with, could we do it? We had a graduate program in the College of Education for a Master's of Arts in Teaching. And they said that they might be able to do an assistantship if I found a music person. So I had worked with the Scouts. Uh, there was a guy named Cliff Walker who had played timpani yeah. and tenors with the Scouts. And he's, he's here now. He's from your area. Yeah, he's, he's, he's at Mizzou as, as adjunct and doing marching. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, he, he had got his undergrad with uh, Dennis Rogers. Yeah. And he was doing grad work, I think, at Truman State. Yep. And I went up to Truman State and played a recital and we talked and everything. And he he wanted to transfer. So he he transferred to UCF for this Master's of Arts teaching. And then he taught the drum line as part of the grad assistant. And that was the first help I had. And so we're talking about 98, 99. So I've been at it for four or five years now. And I had this assistant with the uh, graduate student. Once he graduated, they hired him back, and then he went on to, to work as a band director in the area, so he couldn't do it anymore. So then I was able to bring Dan Niemeyer, who was my uh, tenor tech in Madison for many years, you know, marched Madison for many, many years. And so Dan came down, and the band director, they paid him, you know, not an assistantship. He didn't have an undergrad at the time. He does now, of course, but he didn't at the time, and they they paid him to, to do the drum line, and then that was my relief. And then when Dan left to go back to North Texas to finish his undergrad, that's when they said to me, could we hire, you know, there's this guy that Ron knew. And he said, Kirk Gay. And I said, well, I know Kirk, you know, I, he was a timpanist and star when I marched Vanguard. And uh, he uh, he had taught, you know, Crossman and now and Phantom, the uh, year Phantom won. Kirk was the uh, percussion director. Yeah, and uh, so I, I knew of Kirk and had talked to him a couple of times informally. But I said, you know, it's going to be weird because I need a drumline guy. But I'd also like to have somebody to help with orchestral training, you know, timpani and orchestral. Uh, you know, I have a background and studied in it. I play with orchestras, but that's not where I put the emphasis of my practice or my learn, you know, my uh, study time. So I said, where are you going to find somebody who could do drumline, orchestral and steel drum? Enter Kurt Gay. He has a master's degree from the Cleveland Institute where he studied with Cloyd Duff and Janchic. And an undergrad from Northern Illinois, where he played in one of the best collegiate steel drums, steel drum bands and played under Cliff Alexis. I mean, come on. And he did drum corps. So it's like, there it I, is. <laughs> I had the perfect package. Yeah. And so they, they hired him and he was doing engraving work at Disney World at the time. Mm. So they hired him to come in and help me. But and that allowed him to quit some of his other jobs that he was doing. He was still freelance arranging for cores in Japan and everything and clinics and all of those things. But we were able to work together. And after a first couple of years of sort of getting to know each other and cooperating, we've become and still are very close friends. 
and really uh it's it's it was a godsend because uh the, the things that I felt very good and comfortable and and enjoyed doing uh he didn't want to do that much and the things that I didn't want to do that much he did so we complemented each other very well and and so we've worked together now 15 years so so I'm at 30 years I think this is Kirk's 20th year so 10 years into the job that's when I finally got Kirk as an assistant but again it was all adjunct and it was piecemeal and the marching band had to pay a piece of it and like me Kirk got to a point in your life where you just go, I, this is a young man's sport. I cannot be out here in the heat and all of this all the time, especially Florida heat. Right. And, uh, and so we were looking for, you know, support. And because Kirk was so technologically advanced too, he was very uh, fluent, not just in finale and all of that, but with computers in general, we needed an undergraduate coordinator to keep track of all the music majors. And he could do that. So they hired him as an instructor with primary assignment, 60% of his assignment being undergraduate music coordinator, and that freed him up to have that portion of his load to help with percussion. And that's what I learned, Pete, is I was like, I need more percussionists. But as the faculty said, we're not going to hire the second percussion until we get the first oboe or the first bassoon. Well, if you could find somebody who could do something administratively and sort of backdoor them into the percussion, that, that seemed to be the way to do it. So Kirk, 20 years ago, got in here and we eventually, over that time, got him into that position, and it's been a blessing for the program and for myself personally. He's fantastic, and the students are are great. I, I loved going to concerts and just listening to the students play with the orchestra and the band. Uh, Kirk's timpani teaching, in particular, is really phenomenal, and and it, it was always good. Uh, I, it was these are areas that I that I viewed as weakness on myself, and I did my best, but I was like, you you just tell a difference in the quality when, when you have somebody. And I, and I wish this for all percussion teachers, because no matter how good we are as generalists, there's all this expertise that, and, and as percussionists, most of us are so giving and, and cooperative anyway. It's like working with another person on a team is a, is a, is a dream. If you have the right personalities that can, I've seen some nightmares too, but <laughs> this has been good. And uh, when, when I was, promoted a full professor and a couple of years later they made me chair of the department you know that's when I was able to hire Thad Anderson right out of doctoral school he got his undergrad with us and then his master's and doctorate at UT Austin with Tom Burrett and we were able to hire him right freshly minted DMA right into UCF they they made him a visiting instructor because they weren't sure there was they weren't the upper administration wasn't sure if I would work out as chair uh, not personally, just in general, people have taken those jobs and quit right away after they yeah, get. Yeah. So after three years, they said, yeah, you're working out. So let's make him permanent. So they, we did a national search and 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 Thad won it. So Thad, be, this is Thad's 15th year. <laughs> so you think about this, me 30 years, Kirk 20 years, Thad 15. The University of Central Florida has three percussion teachers and people go, well, of course it does. It's got 70,000 students. And it's like, well, wait a minute. The music department's still about the size of most music programs. That just tells you that UCF has figured out if you if you have your percussion expertise, but you assign most of it to administration and then leave some percussion. You know, there's three of us here, but there's probably one and a half FTE teaching percussion. So you mentioned that, you know, you're doing all these things. You, you were you're fresh out. Um, you know, you take it, you're like, I'll take anything. I'll do all the stuff. Cause you know, you both, you want to get better at it. You want to learn, you, you want to help all that stuff. 
I mean, was there a physical part where, or a mental part or both when you're like, hold on, <laughs> we, something has to change because I can't do this anymore. Of course there's, there's that time where it's both physical and mental. I think that happens, but it, again, I, I started by saying how sort of unique. I, I talk to students, especially graduate students who are asking me about my background and how did I get my job and everything. And when you tell them, they, you can see their eyes well up because they're just like, I'll never be able to, you were, you were younger than I am right now. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, it don't use that as a barometer. I was a complete anomaly. And, and even now in the career, I don't know anybody who's really doing that stuff at that age. And that's not a, really a reflection on me or my abilities. It was really a reflection on, I, I prepared as best I could opportunities came and I met those opportunities and just the amount of people we are producing with doctorates it was still significant in the mid nineties. It wasn't like nobody was getting doctorates in percussion, but it's really big now. Yeah. It's going to be a little bit harder now with this landscape. And I've, I've heard, you know, percussion teachers tell me, Oh, you were still part of that group that could get a gig without a doctorate. And I was like, no, I wasn't. I was told very clearly that, and it was very clear in most descriptions, you needed a doctorate to do this. So I fully expected that I would be in school for another five or six years before I got the job. But then I got the job. And here's the thing to circle back to your question. When you get a job at 26, you don't burn out until you're 33 or 34. And that's when most people are starting their job. <laughs> right. So I was able to run a significant overload, recognize that it was an overload, but I wasn't at that physical or mental stage of being burned out. I could still do it. And that helped me. But yes, when I got into my mid thirties, I said to myself, you know, I had really spent a lot of time, you know, 10 years on the road with the scouts and I, you got to sleep on the gym floors and all of that stuff. And it's not glamorous work. Uh, yeah, I, I needed to have a change. There were, there were things that were evolving and changing, but I was fortunate again to have the job and to have established some credibility with my my peers, my my colleagues at, at the school. So they were supporting. They recognized that the per percussion program was strong and that I and it was consistent. I was recruiting quality people and retaining them, graduating them. And so I had a lot of good support there that when I said, hey, I'm really burning out on this. And maybe from an age standpoint, it's a little earlier than some people burn out, but I'd been at it for a long time. And they recognized that and they stepped into the breach and said, let's help him. And that's why when they asked me to like be chair or do some of these other things, I really felt good about it because administration is service. So you're leading, but you're really serving your colleagues and your peers. And if they don't want your service, you shouldn't give it to them. <laughs> you know, shouldn't force your leadership on anybody. So they seem to be supportive of me doing other work while I could still maintain some teaching and percussion you know, it's, it's sort of evolved my process. It, it was like, wow, I can step away from the marching stuff. I can step away from this stuff. And then I filled it with a lot of publishing and a lot of other activities and, and then eventually administrative duties. And I hope that my program and that my, the, my colleagues who supported me have benefited by that investment that I'm making. And, and so it really is a trade-off of, of support. They gave me their support and I'm trying to give them back the support they gave me. So about about my mid thirties is where I hit that 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 initial wall with, you're not going to do the collegiate drum line, the drum corps drum line, and maintain a professional studio, and have an orchestral and chamber music career, and publish like you should. 
that something's got to give. You can't keep producing. I was writing shows for Indonesian, Japanese, European cores and everything. So I was producing about 10 or 15 shows a year on top of the DCI doing the scouts. And oh my God. <laughs> it, but, you know, it, again, when you're that young, you're just the opportunities. I, sure. you know, my, my parents were not thrilled with my choice of being a musician. They thought I was going to be destitute. Then when I said I want to specialize in marching percussion, they just looked at me and was like, this is the, I, of all the music things you could do, this thing is like the least professional. And I was like, no, I, I understand why you're thinking that, but this is how I'm going to do it. And this is what, and so when I ended up going out to Europe and Asia with these shows that I've written so I could teach them, my mom was like, you know, I'm flying to Japan or, or, or Thailand. And she's like, tell me again why you're doing marching percussion. <laughs> She goes, I, I really didn't think that this would all work out this way. And 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 as it worked out, Pete, you know, this working at a university, they expect research and creative activities at the highest level. So my most productive period and my most demanding period corresponded in a time where I was going to be evaluated quite strictly in right. what I was producing. So I really felt fortunate that way that I had all of these opportunities internationally at a time in which they had the most value in that evaluative process uh, for tenure and then eventual promotion to full professor. You know, with, with tenure and promotion, your portfolio goes out to experts in your field. So for my promotion to associate professor, the experts they picked were Jim Campbell at Kentucky, uh, Peter Zak at Potsdam, uh, George Frock at the University of Texas and Lynn Glassick. He was at North Carolina. Yeah. Just a bunch of no names there. You're right. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm doing all of this marching percussion stuff and publishing these percussion right. with roll off. And what, I mean, what are they going to, well, Jim gets it. So Jim's going to be okay. But what about these, uh, you know, Campbell, but what about these yeah. other guys? Well, Peter Zach would get it too. But Frock and Glassick's letters were wonderful. And Glassick said, he he's done a great job. Frock did this too. He He's parlayed his marching experience and opportunities into a great way to promote the program and to promote his own uh, career and to gather students at an international level of the highest quality. So they these non-drum corps marching people valued it and got it and put it in terms that any academic reading could go, okay, that's what this guy's doing. And then when I went up for full professor, it was Gordon Stout, Gary Cook, Michael Burrett, and uh, Michael Udow. Never heard of any of them. <laughs> I tell you, I keep their letters in a file, like on my desk. Yeah. And when I'm really feeling frustrated and burned out, I look back at what they, the nice things they said about me and the yeah. work I was doing. And it just, it, 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 you're just like, wow, it uplifts your spirit, you're like, I have the the ability to do this. I've got to build deeper. But I was it was really gratifying to have that kind of affirmation, professional affirmation from what I consider to be the highest or the biggest expertise in the area saying, hey, what you're doing is is good and valuable and we see it. And I was like, oh, thank God. I don't know how much more I could do. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> of course. Oh, wow. You need to get those letters laminated if you haven't. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, on a related note, one of the things that I think just kind of hearing more about your story and kind of getting started is that you seem to be seem to have a lot of drive, you know, to do your to do a job, to do a good job and, and to kind of be as successful as you are. 
did that did you find that that attracted a certain type of student who like did you realize quickly on that you were you were starting to teach students who were like really as focused or more gung-ho than you or some who were less and what was that kind of give and take like yeah, it, it it ran the gamut early on. I would have some really driven students, you know, Thad and Omar Carmenates, and uh, I don't want to keep naming people because I'll leave all of these great people out, you know, Brian Baldoff, yeah, uh, Mitchell Gribbrook. There's just a lot of a lot of people over the years, over these thirty years, that really possessed incredible drive, almost from the first semester they were in, but. The curriculum that I use at, at, at UCF was based on the structure that I, that 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 Bob Shatroma and the TAs had created at North Texas. So there was a level system and there was a clear lesson assignment for each week. And there's a certain student that really appreciates structure. They gravitate towards that and you see that. There's other students, especially art students like the, uh, music is, who see this as more like prison. And they go, I don't like this. I re- I'm, I'm going to rebel against this. So it's been it's especially in the beginning it was a grab bag it wasn't all mostly of of a certain kind now over the years it's evolved that we we seem to attract and and in our auditions can select among a a group of auditionees people who really will and seem to gravitate towards that level of structure and again it's nothing that people who don't can be more successful even it's a way for us to be accountable to the student and for the student to know what the expectations are. And I found a lot of students over the years, especially in music, appreciate that level of structure and knowing. So early on, it was a struggle, but in the middle of the 30 years, it got pretty consistent. And now, of course, it's 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 very consistent that that the students seem to appreciate and I don't have as much variance as I did uh, early on in, in the teaching. But the variance I was very compassionate about. I don't believe I figured out a way that works for everybody. I figured out a way that works for me and helps the student, I think. And when it doesn't, I'm open to the idea of trying something different to help the student because I got to meet them where they are. My goal in the end is that they learn. It's not that they learn this way. And I was driven early on in my career. Part of that drive was I was ultra competitive. I'm so glad that cell phones and videos and things didn't exist when I was doing drum corps in the early years and everything, because I have a feeling many of my feelings and thoughts on things would have come back to haunt me. Uh, but uh, as luck would have it, you know, my friends have seen me and they knew I said or did things. And now I've evolved into a different position philosophically. I was still able to keep that competitive spirit, but channel it in a constructive drive as opposed to a drive to be better than somebody else by crushing somebody else. I, I think the healthiest form of competition, and I learned this in drum corps, was when somebody else's excellence inspired me to be more excellent. And then if we could, if I was successful, we could both be excellent together. And that's why the whole concept of evaluations based on competitive ranking never really settled with me. Because, I mean, if if we were taking a class together and the teacher said to us, I'm only given one A. So whoever whoever knows this material the best is getting that A. And no matter how close the next person is, they get a B. And no matter how close the next person is, that's a C. And the rest of you are getting Ds and Fs. I think we would reject that class and say this evaluation is based on a, a premise that's not true, that somebody else's control of the material has an impact on my control of the material. 
Right. But for some reason, when we get into competitive mode in, in, in drum corps and in marching band kind of competitions and indoor drum line, we lose that concept. And it's, you know, we want to maintain excellence and quality at the highest level, but how can we, how can we motivate and drive people and create the drive in people without having it become perverted in a way that makes people want to hurt other people or crush other people or worse yet, not appreciate other people. You know, I always thought it was, it was funny in drum corps, the people who really understood what it took to get to the level that this other group was at was us. And we're rejecting them because to accept them would be somehow enabling them to beat us, you know? And I was like, this is really have got, has gotten to a very bizarre level there must be a truth out there and once i i came to that i think i was able to instill that drive for excellence and pursuit of excellence into my teaching and structure so even students who re rejected the strictness of the structure respected the concept of trying to be excellent because somebody else showed you what was possible or you just imagined what they were doing is, is possible try to try to meet that and uh that kind of encouragement really the it, it created a very good culture in the studio because everybody was supportive of everybody because the better somebody else was the better you could be yeah. uh, you just don't see that every place uh yeah it, it's a rare thing but it it it's been pretty consistent here I'm, that's one of the things i'm very proud of is if you talk to alumni from our program who graduated from our program they'll tell you about that experience of being part of this community of people that, you know, it's not kumbaya. There's still lots of fighting and lots of, you know, people didn't put the cowbell back where they should, or that guy never cleans up. And so there's always the same problems that everybody has, but the overall, when you want to see somebody's performance in their recital or their concert and you go to it, it's like going to PAS and just being inspired by all the great accomplishment that you see in that very tight time period. And it's like, can't wait to get home and get better. You've kind of answered this, but, but I'm going to ask it to kind of reframe the kind of next part, which is you going into administration. Did you think like, oh, you know, if this opens up or if they ask me to do this, I'm I think I'm ready to do it. Or was it kind of uh, sometimes these things get foisted on you, whether you want it or not. And then you figure it out. What was what was the path for you there? It, it was foisted upon me. Okay. There were there were seven full professors. Uh -huh. And the current chair that we had, I was very supportive of, but. He didn't have the greatest people skills by his own admi admission. Not that's I'm not criticizing him. He had something he would tell you. Uh, he had he had done he had implemented necessary policies, but had done it in a way that alienated some people. And he didn't really care at the time because again, you're establishing your your ability and your source of authority or whatnot. So I never had any ambition to be in administration. I loved teaching because. I think the greatest thing somebody can do with their life is to be of service to others. You know, I think that's what drives people to becoming medical doctors or attorneys or anything else. I mean, all of us in our careers seem to be driven towards helping others, but teachers in particular have this, you know, heart that draws them that way. So I always felt that teaching was my calling and this is where I was happiest and what I would do, uh, you know, happily every day when I wake up, get out of bed, I want to do that. Uh, so when this, a uh, chair who I respected quite a bit and thought he did a great job, but I understood why there was resistance to his leadership. When he said he's not going to do it anymore, 
the seven full professors sit in a room and they go, well, Jeff, why don't you do it? You're the most organized. And I was like, because I don't want to do it. I'm happy <laughs> what I'm doing. This is, I've spent my whole career on this. I don't want to not practice as much because I'm doing spreadsheets. Right. I don't did you did you look around like uh Je- wait that Jeff? Wait, yeah. this one who yeah, who are you? Calling? I mean, Jeff's are in the room. <laughs> it's it's incredible. Uh, but I said, you know, I said to my colleagues that you know, the the choral director at the time had a great eye and was a real good uh he really understood aesthetic. And I said, if you will do the marketing and support the marketing people. And then I had another, uh, our, our clarinet person was a fantastic uh, people person. You know, he wasn't a bubbly, outgoing person. He just kept things calm and solved problems and did that. I found him bubbly and funny because I spent a lot of time with him. But uh, it wouldn't be the first maybe characteristic some people would say, but that's what I would say. Uh, and And he agreed to help with the personnel part of it. And, you know, other people said, okay, I'll step in and do the scheduling. So it was a very interesting foisting because what they were trying to foist on me, I immediately pushed back out and everybody grabbed a piece. And I said, if you guys all do these pieces, I will serve in this part of it. And so then we did this collectively together. And I, um, it's like anything else that you, that you do, even if you're reluctant to be, to start it, if you've agreed to do it, you better do it the best you can. So I read books. I went to workshops. I tried to do my very best to learn how one becomes a good chair. How does one do good department policies? How does this happen? And I made myself available, you know, for all of these trainings and things. And yes, that did sacrifice some of the stuff I normally would have practiced or taught more lessons. But then it got me another person to teach percussion which has augmented my teaching life in a, in a very special, great way, having Thad Kirk as, as a team with myself. I mean, I, I really, some of these things have these hidden uh, values that you don't know at the time when you say, yes, you know, it's the right thing to do, but it looks like it's going to be bad for you. And then, you know, it's karma, you know, it's like, oh, I guess it worked out. Uh, and so this is kind of how it worked out for me. So I agreed to do it initially. I thought I would do a one five-year term and be out because I didn't want to be an administrator, but I wanted to do what I said I would do well, but I didn't want to do it for a career. So then I found this out. A big part of administration is trying to make sure that other people who shouldn't be in administration stay out of administration. <laughs> a lot of us, it's not, it's not just that you get something foisted upon you. They get you by saying the alternative is if you don't do it, we're going to give it to this guy. And then you're like, okay, okay, I'll do it. I'll do it. Right. So some of that happened later in the career where they, they're the threat of what they're going to do and what that would undo uh, kind of forces you to consider doing another step. And so for, in my case, they were merging music and theater together into a school of performing arts. We did a national search for a director. I didn't apply. And they failed the search. They said we couldn't find who we wanted. And so then, a, again, a group of faculty came to me and said, you got to apply for this. And I was like, I, I don't want to do this. And they said, no, we really need you to do this. And and you'd be good at it. You'll figure it out. And I was like, yeah, but I'm going to lose this. And so I talked to the dean. And the dean was like, if you do this, then you can get this and this. And if you don't do it, I'm going to go for this other person. And then I don't know what happens to your program. I don't know what. So, again, some of that accidental feeling of administration happens. 
But here's what I learned, Pete, and why it's, I don't want to make it sound like I have been unfairly, you know, in servitude for this. The thing that drew me to teaching is the very thing that I get satisfaction out from administration. I'm of service to others. And if my work helps graduate more students in four years, helps get us the better equipment, if we get better facilities, and I was able to sit at the table, I've, I've said this to other arts people, one of the biggest challenges of arts funding across the United States, but in higher education in particular, is because the very best arts advocates and the best minds in terms of understanding higher education and where arts training can fit in it are on the sidelines, teaching where their discipline and their passion is, where they should be, but not when we're sitting at a table deciding who how to cut the budget into this and what gets them funded and what doesn't. So some people, and I'm not saying that I have done this, but some of us need to step forward and say, I've got to, I've got to lead, I've got to be a part of that, I've got to be in the room where it happens and represent what we all need funding-wise and support-wise to do this well. If enough of us don't do it, we're going to end up with a lot of people who don't understand what we do making decisions for us. But it, if enough of us step forward and do it, at least, you know, in my case, in my mind, temporarily, I'm moving forward. I'm 55 now, so I, I've got another two years left on a five-year term. I might do a third five-year term. I might step back to the faculty at that point. But at some point, I'm going to step back to the faculty. That's how I see myself. And if I have been able to move the football down a little bit, let somebody else come in and pick up the ball and go. You know, I the the University of Central Florida is just just over sixty years old, and I'm the first arts person to be in charge of the arts units. Yeah. What does that tell you? You know, and you know, people said if you could do it all over again, what what you know, what do you what's your dream job? And I said, my dream job is to be the percussion teacher for me. <laughs> Because you don't have to explain to me why we need three sets of timpani of three different pedal configurations. I know why we need that and why cases aren't a bonus. Yeah. Cases are something that are necessary. Yes. Uh, there, so there's things that I understand from my experience that if enough of us were in those positions, and we talked about this a little bit before, but uh, if there, there does seem to be a number of percussion people getting into this business of administration. So if enough of us get in there, I think we end up helping move the discipline forward uh, as best we can. And then hopefully somebody else is right behind us, ready to pick up the ball and move it forward. So the, the, the that, that, that group of people can fall back and, and, and teach and then they retire. And then the next group comes forward. And I think that's how we progress, really. But if we all stand on the sidelines and go, who's going to do this? Let's yeah. Let's get the theory person to do this. Let's get the music history person to do this. Let's get the piano person to do this. Well, that's what we've done in the past. Yeah. Now we've had more theory and and his, uh, you know musicology and and piano professors as administrators than many other disciplines, many other instruments and things. Band directors we've had too. Oh yeah. I think the values and the goals of what those programs do reflect that. Yeah. So if we had some percussion people in the lead leadership too, as a mix. Mm -hmm. I think that's a that's a positive thing. You don't need to be always have percussion all the time, but to have it some of the time, I think, is necessary for for programs to advance because it's it's critical that we are on an equal footing with all other disciplines. You know, I think skill set for percussionists 
is is actually well suited for a lot of admin positions. But also, I know I believe I've talked to Julia Gaines about this. So I know you know who's just she just finished her term as as the director of school music here at Mizzou. And I know one of the things she said is, you know, we need we actually need more percussion instructors to go into these admin roles, partially in in a way so that we can protect like the per, the percussion position and have this new generation breathe the new life into it. Yeah, I think she's exactly right. The stage where higher education is always at, we're always in a reflective place of going, well, what's worked so far? What can we do without? And the fewer voices you have at the table saying these are necessary, the better chance you have of it being removed. And uh, that's something that we all need to fight. So, uh, you know, there are some natural skills like the organizational skills, the collaborative skills, the sort of understanding, deep understanding of multiple areas simultaneously. There, there's things that if you're if you're a, um, a conscientious percussion professor, you're sort of aware of these things and hopefully you're able to you have the personality to be able to stay calm and level things and, and work together with people. That's the ultimate. But if, if we don't, if we get people who don't have that perspective into decision-making positions, don't be surprised that no matter how well you make your case, it's, it doesn't, it doesn't persuade. So we need to have some people who take less persuasion because they understand the the problem or the concept at a deeper level so that they can then put it into a proper context going forward from a budget standpoint or from a support standpoint. And so Julia uh, got into administration just a few years after I did. And we've talked over the years at different junctures about things we were confronting. In fact, our current president at UCF is the former. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We had that in common too, and talked about that. You know, so Julia has been a great source of support and information and counseling for me over the years. We see things very similarly. And it's it's not that we can require people to do this kind of work because that's not the kind of people you want in this position because there's a, there's enough times where you're doing this kind of work that it's, you just, you go, I quit. <laughs> you know, I give up. I can't do this. But, you know, I, we talked about this. Uh, we were setting up the phone call. Uh I learned this in drum corps and especially in the design process, there were so many things in conflict with each other staging. The guard wanted to be staged here. The brass need to be staged there. The percussion pulse center needed to be here. And those are in direct conflict with each other. Then you have to transition out of whatever set that is into this other set. And now the music has changed and who has the lead voice. And there's just a constant array of conflict. And when I first started as director of school of performing arts, uh, one of the first things that I did and the faculty suggested, and I was glad that they did, they said, follow a production from concept all the way through the performances. So right when I started as director, I, I tracked uh, a, a theater piece called Shipwrecked. And I followed it from sitting around the table, arguing with the designers about what they were going to do and everything. And they thought they were training me to understand all of the things. And And theater is a unique animal, don't get me wrong. But a lot of the conflicts with design and everything were very reminiscent to me of, of marching. And then on top of the actual conflict, there's personalities where people, some people are so competitive. And I was one of those people. I had to win arguments. I had to win. So I was fighting. And sometimes I would win the argument because I was the best arguer. 
And then when I watch the finished product, I'm like, I shouldn't have won that one. Yeah. You know, I have not used my powers for good in this case. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I, and I think that that can, that can happen too in this process. So we need administ- we need percussion people or who, whomever who understand percussion to step in, who understand how to get along with people and understand that although they may have uh, powers of, of argument or persuasion or whatever your great superpower is, it doesn't mean you should use it every time for your own <laughs> your own idea. Be be uh, humble enough to recognize you don't have the answers, you know, and so. And that's never been a problem for me once I got into administration because I, I felt grossly underqualified to be in the room. You talk about imposter syndrome. I mean, you're like, how am I going to speak on behalf of all the music faculty when I only really understand percussion at a, at a, at a level that I am just starting to become comfortable with? I couldn't possibly speak for all of these other instruments and all of these other ensembles, but I had to dig down and Thank goodness there are a lot of organizations like NASM and other organizations that help us understand our, our work at a deeper level. So you get all of that content, all of that data, all of that perspective, and then you get a seat at the table where the budget happens. And you make your best arguments, and you pick your fights, and you make sure that you're fighting on the side of good, not trying to win, but trying to get to the truth. And if, if, if you do that and we get enough people doing that, we're, we're going to be fine. But it doesn't always happen because, you know, the thought of administration for a lot of people is very off-putting. They just they think it's, you know, bureaucracy at its worst and and just a lot of meetings. And it, it is. It's a lot of meetings. But those meetings are necessary if you're going to understand the complexity. If it were easy, we would have solved it years ago. Right. Once you get into the fray, you'll understand the complexity and the nuances of the argument. You know, I, I have a big concern with people who've made up their mind before I asked them the question. Right. You know, yeah. it's like, uh, can I, can I finish the question? And, and because it's more nuanced than what your ideology might be. Right. Uh, and you might find yourself, although ideology, I identify this way, you may find yourself understand or believing that this might be a proper solution. If you just stay open to the complexity and the nuance of it. Uh, and so unfortunately, sometimes the further removed administration becomes, the less they understand that this decision that they made about some accounting principle has a tremendous impact on the marching band's ability to buy things. But if you have somebody from that perspective sitting at that table, when somebody says, hey, from now on for accounting, let's make sure the purchase cards don't allow for this kind of purchases. It's like, that won't work for theater. They buy home goods and that won't work for marching band because they buy props and we buy these things. So Whatever you do, put a waiver in there. And they're like, okay. And then a policy rolls out that has an allowance for the problems. Right. And, and everyone goes, oh, things are getting a lot smoother. And it's like, and you're you're sitting in your office going, dodged another one. You know? <laughs> yeah. I there's a I remember uh, someone once said, um this is kind of related where this gets into the well if it was if it, if it was an easy problem we would have figured it out and their their point was i don't get the easy problems they that someone else deals with that i get the ones that have that like it's like 51 49 <laughs> and i got to pick which is the better <laughs> and that's why you know and we can't help it we have our biases and we have our unique traits and everything 
So as long as a couple of us were in the seat when that 4951 uh, decision was made, sometimes it broke for percussion yeah. and sometimes it didn't. Yeah. But when we don't have people who are knowledgeable always making that 5149 decision, it will never break for percussion. Yeah. And it breaks and it breaks and it breaks to the point of what Julia said, where it's just like we, we've taken a huge step back and it's it's been our inability to really represent ourselves at the administrative level. And so I'm, I'm trying to tell you that the feeling of service that you feel from teaching is different than what you get from administration, but it's in the same neighborhood in the same ball, uh, same, same ballroom. It's like, I feel it's a large room and you're affecting a lot of people. And I know I we're talking specifically about how it affects percussion, but let's face it, that percussion perspective and how it relates to music theory or how it relates to the general education program in general, those are also important and maybe less percussive but the percussionist perspective is different than some somebody else's. So let's get some people in that room, let them decide the 5149 seat sometime, and then they move on and somebody else gets in the room, they decide the 5149, and then another percussion-centric or percussion-aware person comes in. And when you have that mix of, of administrative, you know, what we're, what we're talking right now is a pitch for diversity, aren't we? Yeah. <laughs> it's like that's the value of diversity is that mm -hmm. the perspectives – yeah. That you have. So as long as we keep picking our leaders from the same group of people, you're going to get the same similar results. So let's make sure we get as many perspectives in the room to make as wise decisions as we possibly can. And that includes a percussion perspective as a diversity uh, perspective. Jeff, let's back up. I know you said you grew up in California. Did you have any any family members that were in any arts at all? No. Or were you the number? You were it. Uh, my dad, my dad played uh, drums. Well, he played accordion and then he played drums as a you know teenager. He he was born and grew up in Detroit. I was born in Detroit. Mm. And when I was five, we moved to Omaha, Nebraska. Uh, my dad worked for Ford and they they transferred him there. And then he worked for Omaha for about three years. When I was eight, we moved to San Jose, California. And that's where I stayed the rest of my time uh, in school. But uh, he had played drums and when I was eight years old, you know, they said, you want to pick an instrument? And I said, well, what did you play? And he said, I played drums. And I said, okay, I'll play drums. Uh, it was between guitar and drums. And I picked drums. And I just loved it. I've always loved drums. It was obviously, like everybody else, it's your favorite subject in school, the learning. And, and really, in, in where I grew up in San Jose, I went to Lincoln High School. Romero Barrera was one of my band directors. He was the program designer for Blue Devils and other things later. You know, we had a competitive marching band circuit there in Northern California. So on any given Saturday, I was being judged by Ralph Hardiman or Tom Float, you know, in high school. So it wasn't the usual. It felt usual because I didn't know any better. But once I got out of it, I went, whoa, I got a, I was pretty, pretty charmed life there for a while. And, you know, there's so many age outs and, and current members of Vanguard and Blue Devils. And they were the instructors, you know, for my high school. They were the people that were brought in. So I got all these perspectives that I didn't even realize I was getting perspectives. I just thought I was getting taught. So my, and, and Galen Lemon had got his undergrad and master's at San Jose State with Cerrone, and he was the principal of San Jose Symphony. So I'd studied orchestrally with Galen. And in my senior year, I wanted to audition for Juilliard. And Galen said, well, you know, you might want to take some lessons with Cerrone for that. And so I ended up studying with Tony for a little while. And then the first semester I went to North, first year I went to North Texas, I came back and, and took lessons with Cerrone that summer of my freshman year. 
it was always interesting to me because so many great marching percussion people had studied with Cerrone, you know, going back to Fred Sanford and, you know, Jim Casella studied with him and uh, uh, any number of people uh, in that area had studied. And Cerrone was very anti-marching. <laughs> you know, this is, this is a direct quote from the instrumentalist magazine, a column that he wrote when I gave clinics, I, I memorized this quote. He said, the whole idea of rudimental percussion has been tremendously overrated and is limited largely to amateur performing groups such as drum corps and has no place in the field of professional music. Orchestral music is the backbone of the history of, of Western music, and that should be the principal study of percussionists is the orchestral percussion, not the rudimental training. Rudiments have their you know place, but not as the focal training. I think it's out of balance is what his point was. And... Uh, and I would always say this in the clinic, I agree with him. I think if you approach rudimental percussion to learn exclusively to play rudimental percussion, that's a very narrow focus. And it really would, I don't know how it comports with your overall music education. But I think if you can see things in rudimental percussion that transfer to other percussion, then whether you're training your muscles in rudimental percussion or on drum set or orchestral, you're just training your muscles. And then when you move to those other uh, musical styles, adapt. And so uh, I thought that that was really, you know, and I kind of had that epiphany studying with him. I, I studied with all these specialists and I was like, you know, it's weird that none of these guys have ever done the other person's specialty. And I was a student and I was doing all of the different specialties with the specialists going, you know, there's a similarity here. And when I got to North Texas, one of the books they made us uh, work out of was The New Breed by Gary Chester. Oh yeah. The whole idea of that grounded ostinato against a melody and another limb yeah. And I was like, you know, you can play all the rudiments as an ostinato and then a different rhythm over the overlapping. It was this layering process. And I said, so if we trained ourselves as rudimentalists to overlap rhythm, we could be training ourselves to be better drum set players in the context of snare and tenor and bass drumming. And, uh, you know, when you're playing marching bass drum and your wrist is rotating mm -hmm. to play, that's yeah. really what you're doing for a one-handed roll. Right. Stevens or Burton or traditional. So I was like, there's transfer value here. And that became a big part of my teaching because I would have students who were gravitating towards different styles of music. And I wanted to show them that they didn't have to turn one style off as they gravitated towards the other, that wherever they're gravitating towards actually had application in all of these fields. So uh, I sort of learned that studying with these specialists in California and then sort of refining that concept when I was at North Texas, because North Texas was just a center of all of these drummers from all over the country and the world, really. There were people who were there from Asia and, and in Europe as well. So you just, you could walk down the practice rooms at North Texas, the practice buildings, and you'd hear somebody sounding like Buddy Rich in one room. Somebody sounds like Dave Weckl. Somebody sounds, and you just knock on the door and go, what are you doing? And this guy's from Connecticut and he sounds like Dave Weckl and he's got a mullet. So it's, he's off to a good start. <laughs> And uh, and he could show you the licks. They could show you what they think it is. And it was like, wow, this is, it was really, you know, it wasn't that you got all the information from the teachers. You got the information from your fellow students. And so many of the students that I went to North Texas with, you know, are still around, you know, and still working in the area. So, you know, my first snare drum lesson at North Texas, my freshman year, I studied with the TA and it was John Wooten. Mm. So, you know, and Lalo Davila was there, John Wooten, uh, you know, uh, eventually, you know, Paul Rennick uh, got there, you know, in the 88, 89 area. 
I think 88, he got there for his master's. And, uh, there, you know, there's just all these guys that I went to school with who I sort of just take for granted. Ken and Wiley is a fantastic uh, drum set and rudimental snare drummer. He had won that PAS solo several times, but, uh, you know, he was just, he's a great teacher. He's got uh, these method books out that are fantastic. He's got a great program at in Flower Mound, Marcus High School, and the feeders that feed into it. The, these are just incredible musicians who at the time I just thought were fellow students and they shared their ideas with me. And it's sort of like my California experiences with these specialists sort of synthesized a little bit than these people with their wide uh, sort of regional uh, knowledge about different expertise that went there. And so while I was at North Texas, you know, I marched in Vanguard that one year and then I started on the percussion staff in 91 in the scouts. So right after I maybe my senior year in North Texas overlapped with the start. And I was a, a, a tenor tech with the scouts and did the pit stuff too with Taras. Taras Naherniak was the pit guy, but he wasn't going on tour as much. So I would do the pit stuff and tenors and Lee Bettis was doing snares and Chris Thompson was the percussion director arranger. And I loved Chris. Chris is a fantastic drum set player along with being a, a really great rudimental uh, uh, writer and and Chris was applying like all this, these chafy sort of linear groupings to the pattern. So his rudimental combinations were really based on sort of funk style drumming and, 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 and well, all linear drumming, whether it's swing or whatever. And it was just, it was such an education to work with him for that 91, 92 sequence, you know, uh, in 92, uh, you know, I have my own memories. I've heard Bettis talk about it, but we both agree that Bettis was gone. So uh, really, when we started the tour, it was just Jeff Peterson, myself, and Chris Thompson. And Chris wasn't touring as much. So it was really just the two of us, Jeff Peterson and myself. And that was that was tremendous growth because it sort of prepared me for my university experience. Because <laughs> nowadays, you look at drum staffs, and they're like 150 people. And it was like, I used to joke when I'd see the Cavaliers had like five people on their staff. I was like, is somebody looking at all the accidentals and somebody looking at the naturals? You know, what's going on? How do you how do you have that many people? It was just two of us. And uh, I, I became the caption head for Madison in 93 and then started writing in 93. I'd written I'd written the pit book uh, for scouts in 92 because Taras stopped working with the core after 91. There was something about him and Chris Thompson. I don't remember, but it was just they were working together after 91. So. And, and Taras had been there forever. The, the, all those great pit stuffs that you remember is all Taras and Herniak. And, uh, and so Chris and I wrote the pit. I, yeah, because he sketched it and I orchestrated it out. And so uh, it's, it's really probably one of the better coordinated books of brass and, I mean, of uh, battery and, and keyboard, because it really started with Chris's sketches of what he wanted. And then I could orchestrate it out to whatever the players could play or whatnot. I had proposed a new snare break for 92 after he had written one. And that's a little touchy when you start to mess with somebody's beats, especially the, the features mm -hmm. at Chris, to his credit, after rejecting it for a while, started thinking about it. And he was like, I like, I like it, but let's put it in. And so I had written the tenor break and then we got the snare break and then the end of the show had to be rewritten. And I did that, but uh, there was just, I, I would write loud slamming impact things. And Chris liked the way I wrote those things because he would write lots of intricate things for loud slam things. So the impact wasn't as great. And so he's like, I love those unison things that you write. You should write the impacts. <laughs> mm -hmm. you know? 
So uh, he was very encouraging in, in my development. I learned a lot about writing from, from watching his, his writing process and the books that he wrote. Grateful for all of that. And so when I started writing in 93, I instantly hired Taras back to do the keyboards. And so I'd always work with Taras over the years till the last few years. We had other people helping us. You know, back then, it was very interesting in Madison, you know, for the 30-year period there from like the mid-70s to the for to 2002, there were three people who were the head of those programs. It was Chris Theo, and we all knew each other. So it was, it was Chris Theo who did uh, Madison from, you know, the mid-70s all the way up until uh, like 83, 84 in that neighborhood. I guess he was still there in 85. Uh, and then Thompson took over, and it was just Thompson from... 86 to 92 or, and he had started Thompson like an 83 working with Chris and he was writing some and touring more. And so Thompson had those 10 years, like in the eighties uh, to the uh, early nineties. And then I had the 10 years of the nineties into the early two thousands. And then I had turned it over to Jim Yakis. So I was hoping that there would be that continuity. And we, we always joked about the old scout instructors home where you'd sit on the porch and in your rocking chair and say, okay, what, let me see your Malaguena. Let me see your Malaguena. Because <laughs> there, there were just compulsory things. Everyone's going to write a ballet of brass. Everyone's got to write a Malaguena. Everybody's going to write. And so it was It was always cool to me as a writer to try to quote Theo and Thompson as much as possible. So there was some continuity in the history. And I'm afraid with the way the, the core evolved after that and just the lack of continuity as we sort of lost a lot of history. But yeah, I, the other night I was in a, a vortex of YouTube watching the things that inspired me as a, a high school and college student of drum course. I was watching early 80s Vanguard and Cadets and Blue Devils and uh, Abridgment. And these were really the, I mean, that's the inspiration. And 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 Mike Back and, and Tom Float when they were Spirit of Atlanta and Mike Back after Float. Uh, the whole thing was like, it was such a catharsis because I haven't looked at that material, you know, those videos and listened to that music in about 30 years. And I was like, wow, this is still compelling to me. I still enjoy, there's a, a visceral reaction that I have to the virtuosity that is on display in those lines. And when you think of those times where the training wasn't year round, like it is now with indoor drum lines and everything, and these players could play these things and these writers were writing these things, hell, you could study Ralph Hardiman's orchestration and arranging for the rest of your life. I mean, he was so uh, innovative and really uh, interesting uh, writing and, you know, floats tap flam jazz that swung and still was rudimentally challenging and Hannum's orchestration as well and writing for unbelievably blistering tempos and still being able to knock out those rhythms and, 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 you know, support what was going on in the brass and, uh, and, and Dennis's grooves with, uh, with Bridgman. That's really what I wanted to be as a percussion arranger for scouts. I wanted to synthesize those things. I wanted to have Dennis's groove with floats, rudimental vocabulary and Ralph's uh, front to back and, and, and quality of the pit writing, especially, and along with the battery writing, but have that front to back and then have some sections of the show that were burning fast, that the drill was going fast and you still had to write pleasing, supportive percussion parts like Tom Hannum. That was really what I was trying to synthesize. So there it sits, you know, 12 years of work. I hope it, I hope it worked out. <laughs> With Thanks. with Chris Thompson's, you know, linear grooves thrown in there for good measure. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. You know, while you were growing up and you had all of these incredible musical experiences that you just told me about, 
Were you involved in anything else? Did you do, were you doing any sports? Were you doing a student government? Were you, were there other like academic things that you were really into aside from the music? I was in, um, you know, AP classes in high school. Lincoln High School, where I went, was not my neighborhood high school. It was a magnet for performing arts. So I was involved in the marching band, the pit band for theater, concert band, jazz band. You know, I was involved in all these things. But I was also in these AP classes, and that got me interested in mock trial. So I, we were lucky enough that one of our one of the students I went to school with, he's a trombone player, a really good uh, guy named Dave Blacker. He's an attorney and San Francisco now, but his dad was the federal magistrate in that district that's in San Francisco. And so mm-hmm. his dad, Norden Blacker, who we just lost a few years ago, but Norden was the federal magistrate uh, for whatever district that is or whatever. And he was our mock trial coach. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, we, you know, how mock trial works is they, they come up with a case and they give you case facts Mm-hmm. And then you get a high school team together, you got a prosecution and you have a, a defense, and then you have the witnesses that are going to speak to it. And everybody gets the same stuff. And it just depends on how you're going to interpret it. And so when you get to a competition, one school's defense goes against another school's prosecution. And so you have to cross their witnesses and they cross your witnesses. And so we had just incredible uh, fathers who were attorneys uh you know, the city attorney for San Jose, Tom Zazueta's dad, <laughs> there's, I mean, it was, it was a, it was a, a, you know, an abundance, uh, an embarrassment of riches of, of, of legal thought. And so we went in there and we could cite, you know, uh, the, one of the ways to score points in mock trial is to, is you, you uh, had precedent and you were citing precedent, yeah. but the way it works in the law is if you know of a, another precedent that, that sort of, cancels your precedent you don't cite the old precedent right whatever but in mock trial that's not the thing that was strategy cite the precedent and force the other team to come up with the right precedent and the judge would normally be able to say that's the wrong precedent this is the right one but since it was a competition the judge didn't have that ability so they would just let it go and if these guys were unprepared with the correct precedent i could get stuff in and also exclude stuff and then the case would come out so over the case over the we did this for two years, the different cases. And so this last case, my last year, senior year, we made it all the way to the California state championships and argued in front of a California state Supreme court justice. And he was the referee. And we, we went there. It was my, myself and a guy I went to school with named Gary Fisk, who went to Cornell. Most of these guys are lawyers. Now I wasn't a lawyer, but uh, we got there the 18th time we ran the case. We had convicted the person every time. And here it is, the finals, and we convicted the person for the 18th time. And I remember going up to the authors. They were, came up to us, you know, the guys who put the, the the attorneys who put together the case study and everything. And they were like, just so you know, the, the the case we based this on, the student was innocent, you know. And I was like, okay, that's cool. And I just started feeling horrible. And I started going, wait a minute. I'm more interested in winning than I am in the truth, than I wasn't just. And it, it was it cut to the thing we talked about earlier, the competitive part. I was more interested in in being right than finding out what was right. And so I, I said to Norton Blacker, I was like, I don't think I can be an attorney. He goes, there's other things in law. You could practice tax law and stuff. And I was like, no, I like criminal law, but I like it better as an observer and not as a participant. Yeah. I, I said, I think I want to stick to music. I think the stakes are are appropriately high for me. <laughs> <You know? laughs> 
So I, I really loved logic and loved uh, mock trial, but I also love the argument. I love the idea of debating, but when the stakes are somebody's life and the law on this, I, you know, I credit everybody who gets into that profession and does it th at the very, you know, high level, but that wasn't for me. I just, I felt like it would, it, it could be bad. So music was my, you know, avocation and turned into my vocation and I loved it. <laughs> It's also it's it what it makes me think of is did, did you all have a we we had what in my high school we had like a like we had a congress week where everyone was a congressperson. Yeah. I don't know if you had one of the, that was like yeah, this, we did that. a similar we, kind of thing. It was in our civics class. So I was the House of Representatives. I was the speaker of the house. Yeah. So again, it you know, you're in the AP classes and I was in these groups and uh, you know, I was around a bunch of I considered them to be really smart kids. They they seemed to be effortless in what they were doing, and I was dying trying to just hang. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so it, I never felt like I was like, oh, well, you're in these classes because you got it. It's like you're in these classes because when the class is over, you run home and you read and you study and you stay up all night. And these guys are having a party and then, yeah. just, you know, waking up and getting a 90 on the quiz. I'm right. like dying and I'm getting an 86 and going, okay, I can still stay. I can still stay. You know. Uh, <laughs> But I mean, you know, and it was it was like that for me in drumming too. It was like I wasn't the naturally gifted, uh, you know, student or the naturally gifted uh, drummer. But I did have what I felt I had was perseverance, and I, I really wanted, you know, it gets back to the conversation about instilling in your students that drive. You know, students will say to me after they you graduate, they're like, "I was so terrible when I auditioned here. Why did you accept me?" And I said, to be honest with you, I have never met a student who was any worse off than I was. <laughs> you know, I, I, I beat it. I, I, you know, I see these students who think they were, they're not good. And I'm like, you can, you can do this if you want to, there's a way to do it. I can help you do it. And it's, it's a shame sometimes when we do auditions and people don't make it, it's not because they can't do it. It's because out of all the people who auditioned this year, I'm, I'm taking this and above and, this doesn't mean you can't do it. It just means you can't do it here because I got to take these people. But you're you're capable, and I hope you find another place that you can do this if this is what you really want to do. Because if you persevere, you can get it done. So I sort of learned that, you know, when I was doing uh, those courses in in high school, and then you know applied it to music. But when I was speaker of the house, again, I just I learned how you could manipulate, not bring things up, and put parliamentary procedure kill bills and not let them go. And there was, there was all kinds of shenanigans that a speaker of the house can do. And I, I don't know if my teachers did this on purpose, but they sort of introduced me to these powerful positions of authority for careers and scared me away from them. <laughs> you know? Like you could be in this position and, you know, without grounded ethics and even sometimes with grounded ethics, you can make mistakes and really screw up people's lives Right. I was like, wow, this is this is meant for people who are much braver than me and much smarter than me. I need to find a place where I can I can contribute at the at the level that I, I feel comfortable with or whatever. So uh, that that it's those are it's those are funny questions, Pete, because they kind of remind me of things that led me into the career I'm in. And I, and I feel, you know, when you're a higher ed administration the stakes can't be higher, you know, for the institution and the students. So I don't mean to say I've picked a profession now that doesn't have as, you know, as much impact. It's like I've ended up in a position that was every bit as 
uh, important, I think, and as challenging as any of those other positions that when I was a high school kid, I shied away from for the responsibilities. And now I'm in probably the most extreme responsible positions you can be in. And I'm trying to take it as serious as possible. When you were both, and I'm thinking both undergrad and grad for you, were those cities that you were in I know we talked a little bit about the programs, um, but the cities that you were in, did you like living in those cities? You know, all respect, but I didn't enjoy Denton. Mm. I enjoyed the people of Denton. They're great people, the, the people who live there, uh, but and all of the students that I had at Denton. But we'd have to drive to Dallas to do anything of, you know, cultural fun. Yeah. Um, there was a lot of music that happened at the university. So that was great it being in Denton for all of that music. But the actual town itself and sort of the cultural life of the town, if you want to see theater or anything, you'd really got to get in the car and drive to Dallas. It's better now. I've been back to Denton a few times and there's just been so much sprawl in that Metroplex area between, you know, Louisville was a a quiet, small community. And now it's, you know, it doesn't seem like Dallas ever ends. It's just like there used to be a distance between that. So, no, I did not want to stay in Denton for the rest of my life. That's for sure. Madison's another story. If if Madison's winters weren't so bad and if the sky wasn't so gray for so much of the year, because, you know, living in California, I just sort of grew up in a certain weather thing that I was just used to and it affected my mood. I I loved the people of Madison and I loved the city of Madison. It was, it was, you know, I've been to like Lawrence, Kansas as a close equivalency. It's a college town that just in, in the case of Madison, it's a state capital. So you get this cosmopolitan thing happening with a lot of culture. There's a lot of restaurants of all these different cultures. And it was just like... And it's a beautiful thought. place, I've heard. It's like, oh. I mean, with the lakes and all, right? Yes. The, you know, I, I we lived in Middleton, which is across Lake Mendota. Mm-hmm. So the campus is up against the, the coast of uh, Lake Mendota on the shore of Lake Mendota. And then we, if you took a boat across that lake, that's where our, my wife's and my apartment was. And, uh, and, you know, the people of Wisconsin, I used to, you know, I took, I've taken a lot of flights in my life to the Midwest from various places, not just Florida, but I'm always amazed, especially when I took them from California, people would get nicer as I got closer to the Midwest. You know, it's like when you're in California and you got to put your bags up in there, people are like taking the space and elbowing you out of space and locking it down and you can't get in there. And there's all this, it's a lot of, um, really selfishness that goes on. And then you would land in Chicago, which was not like the friendliest place. But all of a sudden on that flight from Chicago to Madison, all these people are like, hey, can I help you there? I'll take that bag and I'll put it. You can just put it right under my, my put it under my chair. You don't have the room over there. I'm going to make plenty of room for you. And it was just like, wow, man, people just care about you. And it was, uh, you know, the, the core director of the scouts for all the time I was there was Scott Stewart. And he was, you know, one of the few really great humans uh, that I've, you know, uh, aspired to, to be like, you know, in terms of his approach to, to life and how he treated people. There are a number of people in that organization, the scout organization and the families around that, you know, drum corps used to just be like, Hey, we got a roster of 130 people, but there's only 20 last names. <laughs> Cause all of these families had like siblings, you know, you know, all their kids in there. And so he's an outgrowth of that kind of drum corps, and it still has that familial approach. He always had that approach there. And so we had a lot of people in that town and the surrounding areas who volunteered with the corps and supported the corps over the years. And it was his 
sort of philosophy and his great approach to people that endeared you to uh, uh, not just the organization, but to helping others and things. And I just found that prevalent, not just in the Madison Scout organization, but the city of Madison itself. But I have a very vivid memory of this where I'm in my apartment, it's snowing and freezing cold. And my wife, who's from California, comes in. She's wearing her Columbia ski jacket. She's got the scarf up past her nose. She's got the goggles and everything. She gets out. She's totally covered in snow because it was snowing so hard. And so we get her out of the jacket and everything. And she's just repeating the word, cold, cold, over and over again. And then at a certain point, when we got the boots off and everything, she was like, the first warm weather job that opens, you've got to apply for. And a couple of weeks later, I went down to the School of Music's office in Madison where I was working. And they used to have a three ring binder that had the announcements. Mm-hmm. I looked them up and there were three percussion announcements. One was Bowling Green State University. The other was Ohio State University. And then it was the University of Central Florida. I went, well, there's the, there's the warm one. I guess I'll apply. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and tell me a little bit more, though, about the percussion program at Wisconsin. Um, who you're studying with? Did you have an assistantship? What other what things were involved while you were there? Yeah, I had an assistantship. You you couldn't be more popular than the band director at the University of Wisconsin at the time, Mike Leckrone. <laughs> Mike, Mike was like a big band leader uh, from another era. You know, how big band leaders were these big personalities and, you know, they had their caricatures on the, you know, music stands and everything. This was Mike. Mike had this sort of, you know, uh, really down home feel with the with the football audience. There were many years where the Wisconsin football team was terrible. And so the fans would have a horrible time. And so he invented a thing called the fifth quarter. So after the game, win or lose the band would take the field and then play these series of songs. Budweiser song. There was the chicken dance. There was a, a couple polkas. I mean, it, it was, a, it was a ridiculous sort of scene that everybody in the audience knew what was going to happen. And Mike was the leader of it. And so when I became, you know, I, I, I was coming up to Madison uh, for a, a camp in 91, you know, as the tenor tech. And I took my, percussive news that used to come in paper form mm-hmm. and I was looking through it and it said, you know, drumline instructor opening at the university of Wisconsin, you know, apply or whatever. So I got up to the scout rehearsal and during visual on Sunday, I said to the guy, the, the percussion staff, there was a guy named Steve Matson who had been the section leader for the scouts in 88 and uh, 87 March, many years. And I said to Steve, cause he had gone, he's gone to the university of Wisconsin. I said, uh, I saw that there was an announcement for the drumline thing. He goes, I know Mike, I can just give him a call because Matson marched and was a section leader in the Wisconsin band too, which is pretty rare to have somebody in the scouts and the Wisconsin band because those are two different entities of activity, drumming, say. At that time, I'm not speaking for now, but at that time. Matson called Lecrone. I went over there with my stuff. Lecrone looked at it. He thought it was great. And he said, okay. He goes, uh, I, I want to hire you, but he said, we can do it two ways. You can come in as a, a staff member or I can convert the the staff money into an assistantship if you want to get a graduate degree in percussion. You got to pass a percussion audition, but you know you should be all right. And I was like, okay, uh, let's do a master's. So I mean, I went I went from my mindset of I'm graduating North Texas and I'm going to try to find a band directing job so I can have my summers free to teach drum corps to I guess I'm going to graduate school at the University of Wisconsin Madison. 
And I came up in May and took the audition with Jim Latimer, who's the sole percussion professor. Nobody else was teaching there. And I auditioned, I played pieces and Jim said, great, you're in. And so I had an assistantship to teach the marching band, write the drum line. And so I started, I was like, how many bass drums do we march? And Mike said four. And I said, okay, uh, can we march five if I wanted to do a bottom bass thing? He goes, no, I'm sorry. We march four bass drums. There's two sizes. And I said, and what's the tenor configuration? Is it quince or six tuples or what is it? And he goes, it's duo. Not even tritoms. <laughs> 13 and 14. No, I put an eight inch on the 13 and 14 drum and they thought I was a heretic. You know, <laughs> you're a wizard. Yeah, I was like, I was like, guys, now you don't have to hit your hand every time you try to hit a rim shot on the 13 or 14. Just hit this eight and you can hit it every time you'll get it because they did the leg lift uh, and they lifted their legs you know, above the rim and stuff. And so the duos had to march sort of reverse pronated where their knees went in between the 13 and the 14. Mm, it's, yeah. it's a wild look, but it was a traditional look and. Mike was not interested in doing core style. He was interested in his style and that's what he wanted to do. So again, I had a great appreciation for the fact that I had a drum core of the Madison Scout caliber at my disposal. I could write any rudimental thing you could think of and they would learn it and they would play it. And I was designing shows with Scott Borman, one of the best brass arrangers you could find. I was working with Scott Stewart, one of the best core uh, directors and show concept people. I had... I had like a great opportunity to pl to play in that pool at the highest level. I didn't need my university marching band to be that. It could be whatever it wanted to be. And Mike wanted it to be the best University of Wisconsin with duos and two bass drum sizes it could be. And so I said, I'm going to learn how to write at with this at the highest level I possibly can to give Mike the sound that he wanted from the drum line and the band. And then I was like, in the beginning, it was difficult because I would write some more complex things. And then I saw the drill. And I don't know if you've seen the Wisconsin band, but the drill is this. The drum line's on a file in the 50. Mm -hmm. Oh, Straight they do line. like elevator drill? Okay. Well, yeah, they're going to go side to side. But most of the time, they spend their time. Sometimes they block up. But mm -hmm. back then, again, I can't speak for Wisconsin now. I'm not watching it, but uh, they don't show it. But I mean... They do the traditional pregame stuff like this anyway. The drum line's on the, on a, in a file on the 50. So it's like snares, bass drums. The duos are behind the bass drums and the cymbals are behind them. Oh, wow. You got the cymbals like 12 behind the back hash. Huh. The duos are like at the back hash. You can't hear two duos. Yeah. Uh, it, it was incredible. But I learned in that time period how to try to write impactful drum parts in those configurations uh, for for guys that were as serious as those guys were, which wasn't at the highest level. I've seen more recently, I have seen the Wisconsin drumline. I've been back a couple of times. They're, they're at a higher level than they were back then for sure. But uh, but they were great guys. The guys I worked with, it wasn't that they were terrible players or anything. They just, the band was for another purpose. It was a social, you know, spirit activity. Mm -hmm. It wasn't, I'm, I'm not in here to, to be a music major. So my my assistantship at the university of Wisconsin wasn't sort of the traditional like mixture of music majors and, and non-music majors. It was more non-music majors. There might've been one or two music majors in the whole lot. And even the music majors sort of gave over to the experience of spirit activity and not necessarily absolute music education. I did that. The directors of the ensembles at Wisconsin and Jim Latimer as the percussion professor 
they didn't really get along personally. There was there was a lot of personality conflicts. I wasn't there for that. I don't know how it happened, but there was just this, it seemed like when I got there, there was just animosity. It was just weird. Mm. And so often when the bands or orchestras would want percussion sectionals, they'd ask me to run the sectionals because they didn't want to ask Latimer because he wouldn't do it necessarily. Or I don't know what the case was there really, but they just, they didn't ask him. He didn't do it. Latimer treated the percussion equipment as if it was the percussion sections or percussion areas and the band couldn't use it without permission ahead of time and stuff. It was really cumbersome. So the band and orchestra sort of pooled their money and made a percussion resource room and they put me in charge of it. And so I would check out marimbas and cymbals and other things so that we wouldn't use the university's percussion inventory to try to avoid the conflict. And I studied with Jim and I like Jim and he, you know, he was mad about some other things that he didn't talk to me about, but he appreciated that I was not, that I was reducing friction, I think. So he was cool with me. He had played with the Boston Pops. He's a good timpanist. And that timpani was one of the areas I wanted to improve on for my graduate career. So I took lots of good timpani lessons with him. And uh, we played marimba uh, together. He was kind of too mallet player, but he, uh, you know, did improvisation and things. So that was, there was just some interesting things. It gave me a chance to work out. I had brought a lot of things that I needed to work on from North Texas. It wasn't like when I graduated North Texas, I was complete. I sort of was like aware of a lot of things that I needed to do. And when I got to Wisconsin, Jim didn't pile too much more on top of that. And I was able to continue. And I'd still, you know, I took lessons with Cerrone. I took some lessons with Gordon Peters in Chicago to do orchestral excerpts because in neither program was orchestral literature emphasized. So I wanted to make sure I was doing that at the highest level I could but it wasn't part of their, their program. So the percussion program curriculum wise and everything with Latimer and Wisconsin was pretty loose. And I had this experience of, but the other thing was I was the only graduate student at the university of Wisconsin, Madison. Mm. So when soldier's tale came up, guess who got to play that? This guy. Yeah. Everything that happened, you know, it's like, Oh, we're going to do a, a premiere of, you know, or a, a performance of dragons in the sky, you know, uh, for French horn and percussion and tape. Doug, the French horn teacher at the time, had a graduate student, and she was like, I, I really need a percussionist to play. And this was, you know, that's high-level literature. There was stuff happening. And Latimer had been at it for so long, and he was the first African-American tenured uh, Big Ten percussion professor. You know, he had a lot of contacts. So, like, Max Roach wasn't coming around for every university, but he came around for the University of Wisconsin. So I got to meet and hear Max Roach and and set his drums up for him. And, you know, I I got all of these experiences being the sole graduate student at a place that had this sort of unique draw. Uh, Latimer had Bill Kraft out. Bill Kraft did a, a three-week residency or four-week residency. So I ended up conducting Bill Kraft's work, playing a concerto with Bill Kraft conducting and and got to play some of his chamber music. And, and, and Bill Kraft came to my wife's and my apartment across the Lake Mendota for a spaghetti dinner. So... I had wonderful experiences in my graduate program at Wisconsin. I don't know if it was by design or if it just happenstance for that period, but the marching band was a different entity than drum corps. So I didn't feel any pressure to do it differently. I just learned how to do the best big 10 traditional big 10 style I could do. And then I used the, you know, the scouts as my outlet for the other marching thing. And then I could play uh, in the area uh, with the Madison symphony and with some chamber uh, players 
and there was a pretty good live jazz scene. It wasn't great, but you know, I didn't play as much in that, but uh, I played in some bar bands and it was, you know, it's, it's one of those trippy things about a, a place like Wisconsin. There's just going to be in Madison. There's going to be a lot of eclectic, there's a country band and there's a rock band and there's a, this band. And it was like, I could do as much or as little of that as I wanted to, you know, Jeff, I uh, finish out with a segment called random ass questions. Okay. All right. First question is, uh, I want you to answer this in, in two camps, which is uh, on the administrative side and the percussion side, but an issue on, in a percussion world, an issue in the administrative world that most gets under your skin and drives you the most nuts. Well, the issue in the percussion world that gets under my nerves is when um, uh, ensemble directors plan their performance schedules and they don't communicate with each other. And there's two coordination things that happen there. One, there's an equipment problem that potentially could happen both in rehearsal and in performance. Yep. And it just takes a conversation. That's all. And we could accommodate both requests as long as we knew in advance what you needed and how we could do it. But it seems like we're discovering it in a time where we don't have to discover it. So uh, I, I wish that, uh, and so we just have to be proactive as percussion teachers to go to the ensemble directors, director of band, symphonic band, and then uh, orchestra and say, what are you guys planning to schedule? Oh, you're doing this. Can we have the timpani over here? Can we do it this way? There's a lot of logistics that if they were more proactive to us with percussion requests, it would make the whole thing run smoother, but it's always us going to them and sort of discovering the conflicts that make, you know, percussion so challenging. And then an administrative under my skin, uh, you know, just it, it has to do with budget. It has to do with if you're budgeting well, you're going to run a 5% reserve. And so for me, you know, our budget, depending on the year, is like $45 million. So that's a significant reserve. I can't keep that, I can't keep 5% of that back out of the stream and not into hiring people and programs and everything. So I budget it right out to the edge where I'm keeping a 1% or less reserve, which is ridiculous. It's stressful because you are a crisis away from being insolvent. And so it's not the way you should run your shop. But there's this churn that happens during the year of when people retire or resign or things happen, and that frees up some certain money. So you're constantly gambling about the timeline of when this churn is going to come. So the thing that frustrates me most about budgeting is not being able to predict these crises, and yet you're the person who has to respond to it. But if you hold back a reserve, you're actually going to decrease strategically what you possibly can do. And it seems like we all at the university are insuring ourselves by having reserves, which keeps too much cash on the sideline. Yeah. So if we were able to do a central reserve that we were all good stewards and good safe, you know, good actors in and not taking advantage of, we might be able to do it differently. So that's one of my pet peeves there is just trying to make sure that all the money that's allocated and is available gets pushed out. And yet we are insured against crises. And that, that's probably the thing that keeps me up at night the most is because so far I've had, I've, <laughs> when a crisis has happened, I've, I've had the the churn at, a, at the right time, but it, I, it's nothing I can guarantee. It's just something that uh, it's a chance. Some other questions on the lighter side here. Has anyone ever nailed an impression of you? And if so, how'd they do it? Yeah, there, there've been a couple of students over the years. They, they've nailed impressions of Kirk, and some of Thad, 
but a couple of guys did a really good Kirk, but I, I found out that people did a good me, but they wouldn't do it in front of me. (laughs) (laughs) So I can't, I can't tell you that I've ever heard a good impression of me, but I understand that there's some good ones out there from some alums, but they, they won't do it in front of me. And I don't know why, but I just, I'm like, you know, I, I don't know why, but I like to do impressions. I, I, one of my very good friends uh, in the percussion community is Nay Rosaro. Mm-hmm. I, I did many camps with Nay Rosaro and, and things. And I just love his, his accent and his whole affect. And it's so calming to me. And so over the years, Oh, Jeff, Hey man, it's Nay Rosaro, man. How are you doing? Oh, it's so great to hear from you, man. Come on. And I just, I love getting messages from him. And when I hear his voice, it makes my heart smile. Uh, and you've done, have you done your impression of him to him? I did. I did a nay for nay. He he kind of smiled, but he was just like, he didn't get it, you know, or what I was doing. And it, the, the more I'm around him, the more recently I'm around him, the better I can do it because it's mm-hmm. not any, I'm not like a Saturday night live Im- imitator. I just, I go off of, but Wooten, like we were doing a, a thing last year together, and John Wooten's obviously very close with Nay as well. Nay got into the Percussive Arts Society Hall of Fame this year, so awesome, that's so great. Um, but we uh, did a concert last year, so we're spending more time with Nay. And so I would call John to give him information about the concert or whatever, and I would give it to him as Nay, and he goes, "Man, that's good. That's a scary good impression." <laughs> he goes, <laughs> "So, oh, that's great." Um, what's the most impractical item of clothing you own? I have this series of vests. Remember when vests were a big thing? (laughs) Yeah. So I have a series of vests and I used to love to perform in vests, you know, Mm -hmm. and, uh, now, uh, I have grown in the middle so much that my sweaters won't fit or my vests won't fit. I can't button them. Not even, I'm talking about leaving the bottom button undone. I'm talking about whole parts of the buttons are left (laughs) And I'm not going to get rid of them until I can get back down into them. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> a sweater, or a vests, impractical performance vests. Yeah. <laughs> Probably the most ridiculous thing I own. That's awesome. All right. Uh, what is your biggest kitchen mess up? Well, I have a, I have a two-way tie. Mm. Uh, I like to bake. I used to like to bake. I haven't baked in a lot of years, but... When I was younger, I definitely was a baker. I loved to bake cookies and cakes and things and whatever. So I went a long time without baking. And then I went right back into it. Like I could just, like, I never forgot it. And, you know, I ended up not greasing the pan correctly and doing a lot of other things. And when it came time, the cake was overdone and burnt and it was stuck to the pan and I had to throw the pan out. Mm. And in a closely related topic, uh, when I was an undergrad, my roommate, Rob Bridge, is a great percussionist up in, Syracuse. He teaches at Onondaga Community College up there and fantastic marimbist and uh, rudimental player and drum set player. And uh, he taught me, he said, I'm going to teach you to make, because you don't make any dinner. You bake, but you don't make any cook. You don't cook. So he said, I'm going to teach you how to make Mexican surprise. So it was, you brown beef, you ground beef, you brown it. Mm -hmm. Then you put Velveeta cheese in. Don't ask me why that makes it Mexican, but Velveeta cheese. And then you put it on a tortilla. Well, once again, when he taught me how to do it, it was, you know, it's a simple recipe. It's easy. And I could do it. Hadn't done it in a while. I ba- I, you know, I, I tried to cook it. And then again, the whole thing stuck to the pan so badly that I had to throw the pan away. And the smoke in the room, you couldn't smell. You know, it was like for two days, my entire house smelled like this burnt cheese and 
it was terrible. And I, you know, my wife is a fantastic uh, cook and she makes great food. And, and I've just, you know, I, I try to help occasionally, but for the most part, I'm just not good in the kitchen. <laughs> well, you could just be the dishwasher then. Like I, I, could. That's what I, yeah. I could do that. I could do that. <laughs> I should do that. I should. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's awesome. All right. What is a great movie and what is a terrible movie? Uh, a great movie. I've, I liked for a long time. I love, I've loved the movie Amadeus. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not historically truthful, but the idea of sort of bringing a humanity to something that, you know, oftentimes historic figures have these sort of platitudes and the idea that we were all normal people with, you know, strengths and weaknesses. I love the message of those kinds of movies that look at uh, heroes or great historical figures, uh, you know, warts and all. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like those kind of movies. And so Amadeus sits in my head as one of the ones I, I like the most. These overly romantic movies that try too hard, they insist upon themselves. I hate these movies. It's a movie called like Water for Chocolate that was just, ugh. it was, it embodies everything that I don't like. It's just like, it's trying to be, you know, clever and get to your heartstrings and everything and, and, and sensual and all of this. And I'm just like, there was a, a family guy quote that's so right. He goes, you know, I'm sorry. I never got into this. I can't remember what movie Chris was saying he hated or Peter hated, but he just said, I hate that. Mo- you know why I hate that movie? It insists upon itself. <laughs> and I was like, that's like water for chocolate insists upon itself. Nice. So sometimes when we're watching movies, my wife and I will go, I don't like this. I think it insists upon itself. <laughs> <laughs> nice. All right. Well, what's a favorite book? Yeah, I, I read a lot of books for administration. So there are a lot of nonfiction books that deal with things. And one of the most recent ones that I that I liked a lot, there's, there's books like uh, Deep Work that sort of explain how our superficial emailing lives and texting lives have sort of interrupted our ability to think deeper about problems and how we need to dedicate time to do that. And I know that times where I've been most productive in these things, it's been because I found my the, myself in a position where I could get into deep work. And I didn't realize it at the time that I was practicing it until somebody pointed it out to me. But, you know, I love the Malcolm Gladwell books because I think they sort of try to get at what makes things different mm-hmm. and trying to look at it from different perspectives. So, I'm going to zone in or hone in on one thing. There's a a book called Factfulness. Have you heard of this book? Mm-mm. Hans Rosling, I think, is the last name. Uh, Factfulness is a fantastic book. Hans isn't with us anymore. He died a couple of years ago. But what he was doing in his book is trying to explain about how we keep looking at our problems through data. And we aggregate the data into such ways that it reveals problems but we end up adding solutions or creating solutions to problems that are not getting at the problems because we've aggregated the data into such a configuration that it's not really revealing the true essence of the problem. So he says, you know, if you believe statistics, you'd think all of the work we've done in the last hundred years to try to help developing countries and developing economies have not been successful because, you know, we still have people who are living below the poverty line blah, blah, blah. But he said, if you look at the countries that we're talking about, some of them have better health care now and better infant mortality uh, survival rates, rather, and the mortality rates are down and their travel is higher. So if you keep giving aid in a 
in food or something like that, and they've already established a strong food source, you're not really helping move that country out. So it's just, but we block these economies as if they're one monolithic thing and we're not really drilling down. So we have perfectly valid statistical evidence that are giving us the wrong answers because we're aggregating it in a way and we're not drilling down. So his son-in-law and he developed this technique, which is wonderful. They take the data into these bubble graphs. It's a TED talk that is in this book, Factfulness, that grew into this book. So you have these countries that start, you know, if you think of a, you know, a quad graph, mm-hmm. you know, start in the lower left-hand corner, which is low, you know, it's poverty and all of this. And then you just watch them over a hundred years move up and around. It's like, you're just watching an animation of the progress that people have made. And the message is not that we, we've solved the world's problems. The message is, if you want to get better at whatever the problems are, you got to be more specific and not deal with these things in the aggregate. But people who are trying to get more resources for their problems, aggregate it to make it look like you're a heel if you don't give money to this thing. And we're not really getting to solutions. I think that has parallels in higher education. I think it has parallels in education, the way we sometimes work with students and focus on some things. And we're focusing on things in the aggregate. You've got to be very granular, very specific to know if I make this intervention, what will the outcome be? So I find factfulness as a good cautionary tale to say, you're going to be looking at a lot of big data because that's very helpful for a lot of situations to see trends and patterns and things. But if you're really going to get down to the essence of, you know, successful interventions, you've got to ask more specific detailed questions. Where is somewhere that you have not traveled to that you still want to get to? Well, there's a couple of places. I would love to go to Ireland. There's, you know, some family uh, thing there that I haven't been, you know, and I, I've been to parts of England, but not all parts of England. So England and Ireland are one place. I've never been to Africa, and I would love to go to Egypt. That's a that's a, on my bucket list. And although I've been to Brazil and South America, there's still a whole lot of South America, Argentina, for example, that I would love to, to be at. So my wife and I are sort of focusing, you know, for a while there, I was in Asia a lot. And then we sort of focused on Europe and the Mediterranean for the last few years. So we've, we've been able to see more cities in there. So I think we're almost ready to get to Ireland and England next. And then who knows, maybe Africa in the future. Sweet. All right. Last couple, uh, strangest, funniest, or most bizarre performance moment that involves you. So Rob Bridge and I were doing Nagoya Marimba and we were practicing in an elementary school. Cause that's where the, the Syracuse Brigadier sto- scored, uh, stored their equipment back then was in a closet in an elementary school. And so we were practicing in there and these are Musser uh, four and a third mm-hmm. on marimbas. Mm-hmm. Musser Keelan marimbas should come with a dampener pedal. Right. <laughs> so we're in a closet practicing and the closet has horrible acoustics. It is just ringing. So when you're playing Nagoya marimba, in these continuous patterns, the Keelan marimba is not dying away like it should in the register that you're playing at. Yeah. My fillings were vibrating. It was so much sound. And I was just like, oh, and I'm trying to play softer and we're doing this. And we're, we've, we both learned it separately and we're trying to put it together now and figure out how many repeats of everything we're going to do. And we, we always try not to figure out the repeats, like five of these. We just go, let's do this. And then the nod, and then we go, and we want to have it more organic. 
but you know, we're just trying to get it under our hands and together. So, and it's not, it's not working very well. It's, that's a deceptively difficult piece. Uh, the individual parts are not difficult, but working together in that kind of organic way. And Rob and I played together for our whole lives. So we're used to playing with each other. And that's still a, a challenge at times when you're working on those patterns, because some of them are so close together. Well, wouldn't you know, the elementary school is having their music class, like a, a hallway down from where we are. And the music teacher hears us. And she comes over, she knocks on the closet door, we open it up and she goes, would you guys, that sounds great. Would you guys come in and play that for my class? And it's a class of a bunch of like third and fourth graders. And they normally get to play on their, their drums and their sound plates or whatever they're playing on uh, or sound shapes. And, and we were like, okay. So she goes, I'm just going to teach them for 20 minutes. And then if you guys could come in and we're like, okay. So we keep practicing because we want to get in front of people to have the nerves and try to do this. Cause we had to play it two nights later or a night later. And so after a while, okay, we roll it in. So you got all these little kids and I don't know if you ever played for those that age kid. They are so excited all the time, you know, oh, yeah. and that energy. It feels so good as a player because they love you and they love, oh, wow, what is that? We don't know. They don't know what the marimba is. So you got to do the show and tell. And you, I mean, it's, it's just, again, it's warms your heart. You're just like, okay, well, we're going to play this thing. And this is what it is. And blah, blah, blah. And they're like, okay. And they're all sitting there. And so the two marimbas are facing each other. And you got to kind of the audience, the kids are around in a circle and they're all excited and they're sitting very close. And we start playing and it is loud in that room, even though we're playing, you know, at an appropriate volume, those Keelan marimba, they just ring and there's so much articulation, but there's so much ring going on and we're playing and Rob and I are trying to concentrate and there's so much energy about don't screw up and count get these patterns. And then all of a sudden, out of the corner of my eye, I see a kid go like this and just put their hands on their ears and the other kids start to imitate them. And the teacher's like, put your arms down. She's trying to get him to be polite. And the kid with, with their hands over their ears, the one kid can't hear. And he goes, it's just so loud. When are they going to stop? <laughs> and Bridget and I are playing and we both start laughing. And now we've lost our place. We don't even know what's going on. So we just keep playing the patterns. And this kid and this there's another kid and they're both going, this is the loudest thing I've ever heard. Oh, my gosh. They're just saying, please tell them to stop. Please don't. And we just looked at each other, nodded, and we get to the end and stop. But it went from the spirit of like, wow, these kids are really going to dig this to, wow, these kids really want out. And we, we got to get out of this. But I got a, I got a ton of stories like that where it's just sort of fun fun audience stories about playing stuff for them. But that that one with the elementary school, when Rob and I talk about it, we just both start cracking up because it was just you know, the hands to the ears. I mean, you see that going on peripherally and that's already distracting. And then they just start talking to each other, but they covered their ears. So they're yelling. So you can hear it just so loud. Oh, that is tremendous. <laughs> oh, yeah. Enjoy your marimbas. <laughs> All right. Final question. What one piece of art could be music, movies, books, podcasts, YouTube clips, theater, visual art, poetry, any art medium has impacted you the most recently? So three weeks ago, we were in Venice and we went to hear Vivaldi's music uh, in the church where he was uh, the priest. Mm. So uh, the end of the concert was the Four Seasons. There was something about being in Venice and hearing the Four Seasons in the church where Vivaldi was the priest that was exceptionally moving. It felt 
there was like a real resonance of what was happening. And then the next day we we saw the Fliegende Hollander, the, the flying Dutchman, Wagner. And Wagner died in Venice. He died. He rented out the room above the casino. And then that's where he spent those last eight months or so. And he died. And so we were watching again Wagner's opera at the Venice Opera House. And then that was a weird resonant experience in the same way the Vivaldi was. And then the next uh, the, two nights later, we were in Milan and I went to La Scala and Verdi Macbeth was playing and it had premiered at La Scala all those years ago. And we're watching a contemporary production. And those three events, you know, Vivaldi in Vivaldi's church, Wagner in Venice and Verdi in La Scala. It was like, this is why people will never get sick of this art is just, it's, it's absolutely, it's transformational. And when you're a musician and a, a student of music as I am, I I just had the greatest historical appreciation for how those events were taking place. And if you're going to listen, if you're going to go to opera, there's few places that will command the kind of talent and quality that La Scala has. So you're hearing music played at its utmost and you're hearing singers sing at the highest level and everyone who supports them, costumes, sets, design, they, they had all this very intricate uh, digital uh, scenery augmenting the already, you know, uh, fantastic physical scenery. And yeah, it was just, it, it, it rocked me a little bit because I thought both, you know, in Wagner, the flying Dutchman is of the spirit world and he gets to come back, you know, for that one night to try to convince a woman of, to love him unconditionally. And the way they chose to portray it is whenever they were in the spiritual mode, this sort of uh, gauze scrim came down and they were in front of that gauze, but they had a person playing, you know, behind him as a, as the real character in real life. So you're sort of watching the real life thing and the spiritual thing. So it helped you understand the way Wagner wanted it staged. I think it was just a much clearer production than other productions I've seen. And Macbeth, you know, in La Scala, it's on three different tiers and you know, they can just move the stage and they move the sets back and forth. And again, everything enhances when in, in, in the third act, when Macbeth is losing his mind because he's become what, you know, he never wanted to be killed King Duncan and all of this. He's singing, you know, they, they do a ballet and the dancers are off against a gray and white projection and they're doing these great dances and moves. And then suddenly when he's mad, it, it goes blood red. And then because of the red light, all of their costumes are now black and they're doing these poses and the poses ended up being like the forest scenery from the first act. The, the amount of attention to detail and all of that, it just, I was into the story and it just blew me away. Opera moves too slow for me. I don't like opera normally. I just go, okay, get on with it next, you know, but this was something where I was just totally entranced and I was like, Maybe I've judged opera too harshly because I've never seen it at this quality in in this level, you know. So Venice and Milan, I'm sure the Met in New York, they know, and San Francisco Opera, where I've seen opera, they know how to put on operas, and that's really the art form. And it just it just moved me. It was just one of those things. Like I've gone on 
Usually my vacations consist of me doing clinics somewhere and then getting a day off or two days to be a tourist. This was one that was just two weeks of touristy. I did not work. And so because of that, my wife had set up all these things. We got to see the 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 Last Supper, the Da Vinci Last Supper in the church in Milan. That's like six months. You got to make a reservation six months early to get in. And they only let 15 people in at a time to get 15 minutes with the with the picture. And then you got to get the hell out. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that those kinds of things will just, when you get done, you have dinner, you're just like, wow, that was, you know, when I'm on stage playing a Mahler symphony, you know, you're part of great art. You know, what you're doing is contributing to an art that, you know, takes all of us to do. That was just the feeling as an audience member going, wow, I have really been the beneficiary of some really great art. <laughs> and it was all sort of in a two week period, but this was specifically in like a three day period. And I was like, oh, this really sets the bar high. <laughs> no more TV for me. <laughs> a real pleasure getting to chat with Jeff for this interview. I appreciate his time and his candor, and I look forward to keeping up with him in all things percussion and administration. Thanks again, Jeff. This week's rave is live music, specifically a review of one of the biggest concert tours in history that is going on right now, Beyonce's Renaissance Tour, which came through St. Louis this past Monday, and on a late decision, I found reasonable tickets on Ticketmaster hours before the show and drove the two-plus hours over to see it, and it was well, well worth it. I've been fortunate to have gotten to see Beyonce in concert three separate times now. First in 2013 for the tour that was mostly in support of her album 4. In 2016 on the Formation Tour and now 2023. She's an incredible entertainer and songwriter and has a real vision for what she wants out of these tour experiences and in my opinion has delivered every time. I was interested in seeing this also because while Renaissance is not my favorite album of hers, it's Lemonade and I probably will still be that, I really enjoyed it and I actually listened to the album again on my way to the show, which I'm very glad I did because it's even better than I originally thought. The other reason I decided to go ahead and see the show was because of what I read about it, that it was an extended show clocking in at two and a half hours of straight music and visual performance. And all of those aspects, particularly visually, were stunning and incredible to see live in person. The show is put into something like six sections that fit her wide-ranging canon and heavily feature the disco dance hall aspect of much of the current album. While the visuals were great, The choreography and dancers involved were the best I've ever seen in a live show, by a lot. Beyonce and her team did incredible work putting together an exciting, high-octane performance with portions that involved salutes to drag shows and stars, black LGBTQIA plus artists being featured, party music, hip-hop, rock, etc. She gave over time to some of her main dancers, all of whom had solos in various spots through her performance, most often when she went to make a costume change, which happened frequently. And the music and the band throughout were also fantastic. I should point out 
away from the show itself, that the people watching in the seats, in the concourse, and all over the arena were on another stratosphere. I mean, I'll be honest, I can't remember the last time I was around so few middle-aged straight white men like myself. That was just fine. Some of the people's outfits, I literally could not imagine. They were incredible. But again, this is Beyonce's show. What I really appreciated this time around is that she went for a longer format that she's typically done, which usually her shows have clocked in at two hours, and that she really just excels in all aspects of performing. The level of detail that she pulled off in the choreography is really special, and she is always engaged in everything she's doing. You know, and speaking of which, while songs like Girls and Formation along with her remixed version of Savage with Megan Thee Stallion, probably garnered the biggest applause and audience reactions throughout. The actual best part of the show was the opening segment. While much of what happens after the first part of the show is based on the disco and dancehall music that she's been focusing on, the first part just came down to her and her band in an evening dress, singing ballads, from the early part of her career, which included songs like Dangerously in Love, One Plus One, a cover of I'm Going Down that was made most recently famous by Mary J. Blige, among others. And let me tell you, that opening set, Beyonce vocally killed it on a level that even those of us who have seen her perform or listened to her for a long time were shocked by what we heard. As in, in the moment, saying, holy shit, she sounds incredible. As in, it seemed like Beyonce was saying, I don't know who you think the biggest pop star in the world is, but whoever they are, do you think they could do that? And then everything else that followed after. As I was telling my wife afterwards, the thing that separates Beyonce from so many of her contemporaries to me is degree of difficulty. And on that level... If you haven't seen or may get a chance to see Beyonce on this tour, you need to do it. And you got to do it soon because it wraps up at the beginning of October. So go see the Renaissance Tour literally now. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast episodes. Shows also on SoundCloud at Spotify, and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast, you can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete's at gmail.com. And I'll catch you next time.